Chlamydia will infect 90 million people this year worldwide. Gonorrhea will infect 30 million people this year. Many of these sexually transmitted diseases, though treatable, are incurable and will set the stage for cancer, blindness, infertility, heart disease, and death. But not a warning. Why? Because this is a moral issue. That's why. And you don't touch a moral issue with your prudish Victorian standard. If you do, you're intolerant. We live in a culture that seeks to avoid any mention of or adherence to objective moral standards. Most people believe that they or their culture determine what is moral. The reason for that is that humans have exalted themselves to the position of God. People are unwilling to submit themselves to God's moral standard. That's one of the marks of worldly wisdom. There are more, and we're looking at those marks today. On our last broadcast, Stephen began a message that he didn't have time to complete. We're going to bring you the second half of that message right now. Now, what James has actually been doing before arriving at verse 15 is giving us characteristics of worldly wisdom, and he'll give us five of them. And so let me give them to you for the sake of an outline or to sort of hang your mental hats along these pegs. The first one that we've already seen is that this kind of wisdom is self-promoting. Verse 14. It is also, secondly, self-deceived. That is, it lies against the truth. Third, it's short-sighted. James now will say the wisdom of the world is tragically short-sighted. He says in verse 15, look there now, the wisdom of the world is earthly. It's earthly. By the way, it might surprise you to discover that James refers to this as wisdom. He says the world has wisdom. Now, the worldly wise man knew how to build a house. If you go back into that parable and explore it a little more carefully, maybe you'll do that at some point in your own personal study. He understood, like the wise man, he understood the principles of of engineering and construction and masonry and, and woodworking. The problem wasn't that he didn't know how to build a house. He didn't know where. He didn't know upon what to build a house that would stand There is a way that seems right to a man. It seems wise. But the end thereof is the way of what? Death. So the earth looks everywhere but up. In fact, the earth really doesn't look forward. It doesn't look into the future revealed to us by God's wisdom, revealed in God's God's word. The tide, according to this book, is coming. It's coming. And the the sandcastles of earth will not stand. The safe house is the wise life built upon the rock of God's wisdom. So James now says that wisdom, the wisdom of the world, is not only self-centered and self-deceived and short-sighted, it is also spiritually blinded. Look back at verse 15. This wisdom is natural. The word James uses for natural is the Greek word psuchikos. He gives us our word 
psychology, psyche. It is the study of the human condition, the natural condition of man. And depending upon your psychology professor or maybe even your psychologist, he may or she may or may not take into account the supernatural creation that you are by God himself. You are more than a psyche. You are a spirit. In other words, God's wisdom, James is saying, is not according to the psyche of man, the nature of man. God's wisdom is not natural. It is supernatural. It does not come from within us. It comes from outside of us. The natural man would say that the answers for your problems are within yourself. We would say they're not in yourself at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the same word to describe the natural man who considers the things of the Spirit of God to be foolishness, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man, by his own intuition, God-given, knows there's something out there. There's something beyond him. He, he, he will talk about spiritual things. He'll talk about spiritual experiences. He enjoys using the word spirituality or spiritual. And so a popular phrase today would be, I'm not religious, I'm what? I'm spiritual. Whatever that means. I think I know what he means. It means that he's in tune with something outside of himself and he doesn't need a church or a system of doctrine to, to tap into it. But according to God's word, he is blinded to true, genuine spirituality in Christ because his spirit that connects with God has not yet been made alive by means of Christ's atonement. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. So the unbeliever you meet on the street or you work with on the hallway or you go to class with They'll talk to you about their spiritual feelings or their spiritual experiences. They're fine talking about spirituality. Just don't tell him that the origin of true and lasting heavenly wisdom and spirituality is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's when he'll walk away. He'll say, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. How can you be so restrictive? You see, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. I'll give you an example. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because they don't have a crucified Messiah. They can't get over the crucifixion. That ruined everything. He's not the Messiah because he's crucified. The anointed one would not go through that. So they stumble at that. The Gentiles can't get past the crucifixion because that's just the most ridiculous thing you could ever think of. Gods don't come and die at the hands of men. Men die at the hands of gods. That's how it works. A suffering, abused, rejected God doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. You must be out of your mind. So you have Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher who attacked Christianity throughout his life. In fact, he wrote what happens to be the earliest known comprehensive attack on Christianity, writing just after James passed away. And he entitled this work that attacked Christianity, by the way, ironically, The True Word. 
He lived and wrote. He wrote that Mary had committed adultery with a Roman soldier named Panthera, a rumor that would be perpetuated through the centuries. There are people today in liberal pulpits who believe that. He went on to say that Mary then was divorced because of her adultery, and she raised her son, whom she named Jesus, in Egypt. And that's where Jesus learned sorcery in the dark arts. Then as a young man, he came back to his homeland where he presented himself as a god and substantiated it by performing miracles that were in reality enabled by occultic powers. In other words, Jesus is is an Egyptian-trained sorcerer who got carried away with his claims to be godlike and ended up dead. That should be the end of the story. And Celsus would attack Christians by saying, and I quote, these Christians worship a dead man, end quote. But think about it. Apart from the Spirit of God opening your eyes to the truth of the gospel, it is absurd. There's nothing more absurd to the natural man than the belief that the blood of a crucified God could actually atone for and remove sin and secure salvation and give everlasting life. You must be out of your mind. No wonder Paul wrote the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And what is the church doing today? In our culture, more and more, they're simply taking away the gospel. They're taking out parts of it that they don't like. Related to the atonement of Christ, who was crucified for the payment of sin and the satisfaction of the wrath of God the Father and for, for the salvation of sinners who believe. They don't want anything with that. And so the emergent church, one of the latest self-absorbed movements, and Brian McLaren, one of the leaders, refers to the crucifixion as cosmic child abuse. The church is removing the gospel from the gospel until you have nothing left. Illustrated well in something I read this past week, a church was made a beautiful stone facing with arches and, and pillars. The arch that led into the front doors of the chapel had carved into the stone the words, We preach Christ crucified. And so they did for generations. But ivy, slow in its growth but persistent, grew up one side of the arch. And it came up around until it covered the last word until all you could see etched in the stone is we preach Christ. And so they did. They preached Christ, the ideal man. Christ, the moral example. Christ, the good teacher. Christ, the positive thinker. Christ, the one in whom you tap into so that you can get whatever you want in life if you have enough faith. And then the ivy continued to grow until it simply said, we preach. Why bother with Christ? So the church preaches humanitarianism and economics and social issues and book reviews. They preach, but their preaching has long since ignored the cross of Christ until they finally come to the conclusion, why have anything to do with Christ at all?
Somebody came up to me after one of the services and said, you know, the story really should have gone one step further. The ivy kept growing until all you had was the word we. I told them I changed the story for this hour. And that is all you're left with. Just us. Ladies and gentlemen, those churches are nothing more than sandcastles. And the wisdom upon which they are built will not stand against the holy tide. And the tide is coming. The tide is coming. The hosts of heaven will one day say this to Christ. In the book of Revelation, the believers will say, You, Lord, you are worthy. Why? Because you were slain and you purchased us by your blood. Evidently, the crucifixion matters at the end of time. And then the next phrase, which is built upon the crucifixion, the atoning work of Christ, gives this glorious promise. And you have made believers to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign with you on the earth. Listen, after the judgment of God is swept away, the wisdom of this world and those whose lives have been built upon the wisdom of this world have been judged. The wisdom of God will run rampant through the earth like the waters of a flood, and we with him will reign. Well, how do you know if you have wisdom from the world? Well, James is telling us, be warned, the wisdom of the world is self-centered, self-deceived, short-sighted, spiritually blinded, and one more, James adds, it is demonic, or we could call it self-exalting, because that's what the father of demons did, exalting himself and his throne, attempting to to reign over God himself. And mankind in, in, in its disbelief does the same thing. I will reign over God. I will hold God accountable. Not the other way around. So demonic. In fact, you could translate it demon inspired. The wisdom of the world is devilish rather than divine. The idea is it is self-exalting to its own destruction. If your wisdom is demon inspired... It leads you to exalt yourself, to reject the cross, to justify your sin, to trust in yourself. It leads you away from repentance and from the Savior who is Christ. It leads you into self-sufficiency and self-promotion and self-centeredness and self-deception and short-sightedness and spiritual blindness. No matter how smart or beautiful or modern or clever it is. In fact, it, it struck me, has it ever occurred to you that the first time the word wise appears in Scripture, it appears in the Garden of Eden where Satan has successfully deceived Eve into believing that disobeying God, rejecting God, and eating that forbidden fruit would make her wise. And it did. The wisdom of the world, she became wise to her nakedness and Adam with her. She became wise to sin and rebellion. She grasped with this new wisdom her own fear now of God so that she and Adam ran 
and hid and what would follow, lying and blame and treachery and murder. So James basically says the same thing in verse 16. Look there. When you exalt yourself, when you follow your own way, that is your own ambition, when you stir that pot and that's all you ever stir, when you follow the wisdom of the world, here's what's going to follow. You. Disorder and every evil thing. Disorder is a word that speaks of confusion. You can understand it with the word anarchy. It's chaos. James phrase every evil thing refers to corruption follow the world's wisdom and what do you get confusion we don't know why right from wrong we don't know up from down we're left to ourselves i guess whatever's true for me is true and whatever's true for you is true even though they totally contradict i guess that's wise confusion and corruption every wicked and sinful thing becomes possible and even acceptable when the wisdom of God is abandoned and rejected and ignored. Couldn't think of but of our own culture, which is abandoning God's wisdom as quickly as a schoolboy can run from a bully. So today, and I just pulled up a few statistics as I did a little surfing pages and pages. I'll give you a few paragraphs. Here's our culture. Eighth grade boys are playing violent video games now an average of 23 hours a week. And you think, Where are the, where's the wisdom of the parents in that? Maybe the more telling statistic is that for the first time in American history, for the first time, based on the census, for the first time in American history, less than one half of U.S. households consist of married couples. In other words, we've reached the point where it's tilted. Now there are more couples cohabiting and raising children than marrying. This year, nearly three million teenagers will become infected with a a sexually transmitted disease. Three million American teenagers. Should we sound a warning? I went to one site put out by CNN Health and the warning, gave all the warnings, you know, how to how to be as safe as possible, and the last line was, good luck, have fun, and be safe. And to the world, that's wise. You compare, however, the warnings and the international panic caused by the flu. You remember H1N1? You remember that? H1N1? People shown in different countries wearing masks and, and gloves That same CNN Health report said that here's how many people died from that specific flu virus. That specific flu virus worldwide, 145. Now don't misunderstand. Those warnings were appropriate. One life is worth all the effort. But consider the lack of warning in that syphilis will infect 12 million new people this year worldwide. It will take the lives of tens of thousands of people In fact, one person every two weeks will die of syphilis in America. Have you heard a warning? I missed that CNN report. I didn't read the article out of the News and Observer. 
Chlamydia will infect 90 million people this year worldwide. Gonorrhea will infect 30 million people this year worldwide. Many of these sexually transmitted diseases, though treatable, are incurable and will set the stage for cancer, blindness, infertility, heart disease, and death. But not a warning. Why? Because this is a moral issue. That's why. And you don't touch a moral issue with your prudish Victorian standard if you do your intolerant. Just good luck. Ladies and gentlemen, the tide is coming in. I visited one country in Africa. The population so massively infected by HIV in 20 years, it will not exist. And still the teenagers line up at night and choose their partner. They have nothing to live for. The solution is not be safe. The solution is be saved. At the same time, the gospel is being denigrated in our culture. The only thing that has any hope. The fastest growing religion in terms of percentages in America today is Wicca. A neo-pagan religion that is sometimes referred to, sometimes referred to as witchcraft. We are now being castigated by the secular media in new terminology. One recent movie likened Christians to Islamic jihadists bent on world domination. This past year, a woman in Houston, Texas, was ordered by local police to stop handing out gospel tracts to children who on Halloween knocked on her door. Now, we could go page after page of all the darkness. It happens to be a wonderful opportunity to know the light. The darker it becomes, the more brilliant the light of one individual. But the world in its darkness is growing more and more confused and more and more corrupt. The tide is coming in. Let me share with you as we close. My, uh, I think it illustrates well this building, the life that we ought to build on the wisdom of God. My, my mother and father bought a couple acres. They're still serving full-time as missionaries. They bought a couple acres out in, the, out in the country. It's no longer country. And they built a small one-story ranch home. They began building it when I left for my freshman year of college. They moved. They did tell me where they moved to, which was nice of them, so I could come home. I came home just in time to help my father that summer. Because of their attempts to save all the money they could, my father and a contractor friend who had the licenses, a believer, built the house. My father did as much as he could, and I came home in time in July to put on those long sleeve shirts and get under the house and unroll the insulation. It was a great bonding time between my father and I. That's a joke. All right, well, anyhow, when the flooring, when the flooring was finished and the bricklayers were coming in to, to put in the, the hearth and the fireplace, they worked one afternoon, and then they left, and my father and I came over. You walked into the garage, into the little kitchen area. You looked through uh, the um, little eating area, the counter, into the family room and the wall where the fireplace was being built. And it had been built, the hearth, and it was about five and a half feet high. And my dad and I looked across and looked at that and just stared for a while and then just leaned. I said, Dad, do you think that's crooked? He looked at it and he said, Stephen, I thought the same thing. We called the contractor. He came and looked at it and he said, it's crooked. Had to tear it down. So he had the crew tear it down to the hearth. A couple of days later, my father and I came in, walked in through the garage into the, into the kitchen. We looked directly across 
to the family room. They built it up, back up, about five and a half feet high this time, and we both stared at it. And I said, Dad, is it crooked to you? And he said, it's crooked. I'm not a builder. And sure enough, we called the contractor, and he said, he looked at it, he said, it's crooked? He had to tear it down. In fact, they tore out the hearth as well and started at the wooden floor. A couple days later, my, my dad and I came over, marched in through the garage, marched up in there, mm, looked right away. It was finished, all the way up to the ceiling, and it was straight. I overheard my father talking to the contractor, and he asked him, what happened? And he said, the contractor told him, he said, well, you know, Keith, we're trying to save every penny we can, which means we use the lowest bidder. And they were a young, inexperienced crew. And my dad said, well, what happened the third time? The contractor said, oh, that time I stayed behind and worked with them. And we got it right. Beloved, try as you might. You will never build your life straight and true on your own. That's why God, in his grace, has given us an inspired contractor called his word and a helper his spirit that applies the word in our lives so that we apply it correctly and we build lives that are right. His wisdom is the only way to build. In fact, his wisdom is the only true foundation upon which we are to build our lives. The tide will eventually come in. The only place to stand, the only place to build your life upon is upon the written word, this book, and the living word, who is Jesus Christ. Everything else is sinking what? Sand. Apart from the wisdom of heaven, everything else is like building sandcastles before the coming of the tide. So if you do not yet believe, I commend to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. If you believe in Jesus Christ, I commend to you the wisdom of James, who says that now as believers we still have the battles of selfish ambition and, and rivalry in our hearts. We will struggle with our hearts. We'll struggle with those things we'll want to foster and embrace and stir and, and keep hot and ready. We are to live distinctively different kinds of lives in our darkening culture and they will differ in this as we grow in wisdom we'll grow away from that which is self-centered and self-deceived and short-sighted and spiritually blinded and self-exalting this is the encouragement and challenge from James these are his words to the wise Today we've explored these marks of worldly wisdom, things that we need to uproot from our own hearts. When we come back next time, Stephen will continue through this series to show you the ways of true godly wisdom. Be sure and join us for that. This is Wisdom for the Heart. Your Bible teacher, Stephen Davey, is the president of Wisdom International. You can learn more about our ministry at wisdomonline.org. 
visit wisdomonline.org or call 866-48-BIBLE for information. Join us next time on Wisdom for the Heart. Wisdom for the Heart.